Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Tent Talks. This is Stacy, And today we're going to talk about a topic that's a little bit intimidating, I would say. It's about white women wellness and racism. And I know that that can immediately feel a little bit defensive or for me, whenever I hear someone talking about it, I'm like, oh, again, but it is an ever evolving journey. And I had a lot of things happen this week where it just kept bringing up these same themes. And so I want to talk about them and just create more awareness and discussion around what this looks like. So First of all, as many listeners know that I grew up in a small rural town in Utah, and I was raised Mormon. And Utah is, I would say, known for its lack of diversity, not only because everybody is Mormon, but also there's so much whiteness here. So there's a lot of public records that show how diverse a community is, and Utah typically ranks lowest for having the least amount of diversity. And that goes for politics, religion, race. You can look up these studies. They're pretty easy to find. And it just kind of gives information about an area before you move in or like what the community is like. And so Utah ranks particularly Provo and Orem. They rank extremely low in diversity. And so it's pretty much an area where there's a lot of sameness. And so when we point out things that are happening, sometimes there's lack of awareness because people just, they don't have a lot of experience with diversity. And so we do have, therefore, a lot of white women wellness culture. And we don't know what that looks like because there's not a lot of counterculture calling things out. And so it can feel a little bit disarming or defensive when somebody does. And I get that because I used to run a women's group and I also ran a Diksha blessing group. So I've run two community spaces for several years and I've seen a lot of themes and I've seen a lot of discomfort as things come up. And it's probably an ugly side of community wellness that we're not looking at as carefully because once you start calling it out, you have to be accountable. And nobody wants to make big changes because that's uncomfortable, right? So backing up, I just want to talk about what happened this week to trigger this topic and this conversation. I listened to a podcast and it was done locally with some local people and they were talking about nervous system regulation and how people need to start feeling safe in their bodies again. And after COVID, there was this surgence of people regulating their nervous system and feeling really good in their bodies, but just with themselves and going out into community spaces and feeling really triggered and really unsafe and how we're looking for community space to feel okay again. And That's been a really hard transition that a lot of people didn't even know would exist because like we long for community and we miss it and we're ready to get back in. But what happens when you re-enter these community spaces and you don't quite feel safe? 
And what is the trigger that makes your body not feel safe? Because there's a lot of factors, right? After COVID, there might be a lot about being close to people or if your immune system is strong enough, or if people are keeping distance, or if everybody's inside, or if nobody's wearing a mask, and if you have any autoimmune issues or other factors that might trigger some immune sensitivities, obviously you're going to feel a little bit weary in community space. But what about just other triggers that exist? Because my triggers are now a lot of racist triggers with everything that happened with the insurrection of the Capitol and a lot of things that have happened with Black Lives Matter and rallies and the exclusion of people and the violence of people. There's a lot of triggers that I have that are based on people not doing their, what I call their racism work. And for white people, it can feel really defensive because common things that I heard growing up were it wasn't me, it was my ancestors. I've acknowledged that. I don't want to apologize for my privilege. There's a lot of themes that kind of keep us stuck. And it's hard to look at how you might be contributing to a system. It's hard to acknowledge when the actions that you are making, the words you're saying, are perpetuating racist ideas or white supremacist ideas. And it's really hard to call yourself out. And one thing that has helped me have greater compassion in these moments when I have to call myself to attention when I'm doing something that goes against my value system is I call or I refer to that as calling myself in. And so instead of being called out, which feels like embarrassing or like a public humiliation, or I associate being called out with a negative connotation, but I associate the words being called in into being more inclusive, right? Being called in feels like, oh, you're being invited into this larger spectrum of awareness, or you're being called into more compassion and more empathy. And so I think changing the languaging of calling people in, because it first starts with ourself, right? We have more awareness of ourself, but then it extends to the other when we're in community spaces of, oh, okay, I want to call somebody in so that they're aware because maybe they're not aware of certain behaviors that are perpetuating racism in our community. So back to this week, (laughs) I was listening to this podcast. I was having this conversation, this inner dialogue in my head of like, okay, back to feeling safe in community spaces, understanding that my trigger of not wanting to go into community space is when people haven't done their racism work and when people are upholding systems of oppression and they're doing it as a community. And it hits really close to home because of all these community spaces that I've ran in the past where I've really fucked up. And I've really done some negative cultural appropriation or exclusion. And I didn't realize I was doing that. So for cultural appropriation, 
for some people who aren't aware of what this looks like, it looks like taking something sacred from another culture and then presenting it as something that you're going to be doing as a group level. You're you're taking it over, you're maybe putting a spin on it, changing a couple ideas. And I think it can be really tricky because we want to share and experience different things. But there are things in other cultures that are sacred and that you don't have the right to just take over because you want to. And that feels hard to accept because we've centered ourselves and we have this entitlement as white people like, no, we can, we can do that, but we actually can't. And so I want to share an example of what that might look like on the opposite end of the spectrum. Now, again, I'm white and I was raised Mormon. So an example that I can give to my fellow white Mormon community is, I got this example from a dear friend, Christina Rossetti. She gave me this as an example. And it's always stuck with me because I I totally get how that would be offensive to everyone that I know and love. But it's this idea of what if people started making garments for people to wear as fashion statements. Like, I just, I really respect your temple covenants. I really respect modesty. I love this idea of having sacred underwear. So I made my own version. I'm including some of the symbols, but I'm switching things up a little bit. We're doing different styles to include like a broader range of fashion for people. But I want people to have garments because I just think that everyone should be able to experience this sacredness with underwear. Now, I don't know about you, but I would know a lot of people who would be throwing a fit about that. And they would probably have a lot of loud public opinions, they might even have money to throw at this to overturn people's ability to do this, because it would be so offensive. But what if that were happening with every single part of your culture until there was almost nothing left but scraps? I've heard of a woman who is Native American, and she kind of explained what cultural appropriation feels like. It feels like someone coming into your home and taking the most valued or what they valued assets out of your home and just leaving you with trash. And that's what it feels like with cultural appropriation. When when people have just taken all of the beautiful gems out and left you with nothing and then said, okay, and that's what your culture looks like. And I've just been a lot more sensitive to that lately in community spaces. Like if somebody's doing a cacao ceremony, if somebody's doing a tea ceremony, if somebody's doing, you know, some of these cool practices that now seem so normalized to share with other people, it is taking sacred parts of someone else's community and it's appropriating it. And it's not okay. And it feels like every time I go to a white women wellness gathering, they're taking some aspect, some element of somebody else's community, and they're hosting it 
for all of these white attendees. And it just feels really wrong to do that. And it's tricky because like an example of a sound bath, sound is universal experience. But sometimes there's elements that are taken that seem really tricky. And we have to recognize what is appropriating and what isn't. And that's an internal, I mean, you just have to navigate what feels okay internally. So doing this over and over again, it's exhausting. And it doesn't feel good to be aware all the time because it it feels like you can't totally relax in every setting. And that's exactly what it feels like, I'm sure, I don't know totally, but to be in a minority where things are placed against you or people are offending you regularly and you just kind of have to decide whether or not you want to say something or not that time. An example of this is I was out with a friend and this happened last week again because all this racism within myself was triggered this last week. But I was on a drive with a friend and we were being really silly and we were kind of making fun of this white guy in a truck who looked like a real sad boy. And he was like blaring some sad, sappy rap. And he was just singing it and just totally in his feels. And we were just laughing about this sad boy. And it was really silly and funny. And then later on the drive, we passed these other kids and they had a suitcase on the corner. I don't know what ethnicity they were. They were they were not white. They were a person of color. And there were two of them and they had a suitcase. And I said something to like, make fun of them like, Oh, I wonder what they're selling out of that suitcase. And my friend looked at me and she said, Wow, that's really racist. And I kind of sat with it. And I didn't know why it was racist. And I was just thinking and thinking and I took a cold shower and I was trying to like get into my body because these experiences are really out of body when they happen. It's like, what? I was racist? No. Like the immediate response is this pushback, this denial. And so I sat with it and I thought, oh, it's really easy and convenient for my brain to make jumps and assumptions about a person of color perpetuating drugs because that that's a harmful lie that's been fed to me that I have believed somehow somewhere in my body I've believed it on a level and it was so uncomfortable to come to that truth that my brain can just jump so fast to that assumption almost without missing a beat it's almost as if it was automatic and of course, I don't want to be one of those people that perpetuates this. And I was. And so I had this conversation later with this person. And I just said, thank you so much for calling me into that experience. Because I recognize that that was really harmful of me to, to have that automatic jump in my brain without having any pause of just assuming the worst about a person of color doing something very normal, very everyday, just carrying 
you know, carrying a bag, and I could just jump to that assumption. And it feels embarrassing. And it feels like I should be above that somehow, like, better than that. And I think that's the point of of doing racism work is it, it just keeps seeping in and you just kind of have to call it out within yourself or call yourself into a place of more compassion and empathy and recognizing the truth that what I did perpetuates a systemic belief that people of color are part of the drug problem in our community when most of the people that I know that have drug problems are actually white people that have hurt me terribly. And <laughs> and yet my belief system in my head is to jump to, well, it's because of people of color or they're perpetuating it. They're selling drugs and it automatically others and creates a separation and a distance instead of taking accountability that the drug problem is systemic And it's mostly affected me on a personal level with people that I know that don't have anything to do with people of color. And yet, simultaneously, at the same time, our prisons are filled with Black people and people of color who are paying the price. And it's not the white people who are paying the price. And that's a systemic problem that somehow I just find myself in the middle of, but I perpetuated it. And so those moments of coming clean with yourself or calling you into a higher truth, they're tricky. And sometimes you need a friend that can mirror that because she wasn't shaming me. She was just calling me into a greater truth. And I had to not shame myself, but take accountability and move on. And now the next time that that I see something, my brain will have created a new thought pattern or a new loop where I'll have some delay time in between making an automatic assumption and certainly speaking that assumption out loud. Because it's one thing to have that thought pattern because it's been reinforced my entire life as a white person living in this community. But it's going to be another to say that out loud. And if I do think it, then I'll correct it. And then hopefully I'll never make that mistake again in that particular way. Another example from this week was there's this Netflix series that's on. It's called Dahmer, I believe. And it's about the serial killer. And there was this black guy, and he was doing a TikTok video. And he was saying that a lot of white people have been making videos in response to watching this Dahmer Netflix series and saying, like, is it bad that my body doesn't feel anything about this, like, violence, that I'm okay with it? Like, what is wrong with me? And there's several white people saying this, and he's he's created this video of all of these people sharing this, this phenomena where their body is just okay with this horrendous violence and these acts against people, and they're just okay with it. And it started this conversation of how white people have experienced generations 
of tolerating violence perpetuated on other people. Our bodies are used to seeing violence and therefore are not responding with the correct response of trying to stop it or or having a repulsion or wanting justice for other people. Our body is used to seeing other people's bodies experience violence and our bodies are, are, are starting to become numb or okay to that. And that is a white person's problem in a really big way. And on the other side of the coin, a lot of violence, to watch violence feels differently in people of color in their bodies because generationally, their people were at the receiving end of the violence. And so you can see how these different groups carry these generational traumas and the response to violence might be different. And so hearing that with this guy's TikTok, it got me thinking about all the ways in which my white community has made it okay for me to see violence over and over again and to have it feel okay. And of course, one of the biggest examples is movies and television, you know, like being allowed to watch a rated R film, if it was violent, that would be okay. Like you can watch Braveheart or you can watch a movie about a war or, you know, something in that realm because that's okay. You can watch that violence. That's good violence to watch. And that just further perpetuates this inner violence that my white body holds on to. Another example is the Mormon church, the LDS church, the amount of violence that we have perpetuated on Native American bodies, on black bodies, is so painful to look at. And so instead of looking at it and making apologies and and doing things institutionally to like change the church didn't make those changes and it didn't ever apologize and so it made it seem okay it's okay to do this because it was god sanctioned or god approved and so then it became like okay morally in your body to put up with a certain level of violence and there's all these these layers to this acceptance of violence. Another thing is sports and boxing and violence as entertainment. Think of people who love like animal brutality and betting and even even in a classy situation like horse racing or something like that. There's a certain level of violence that's happening behind the scenes that we're all okay with. Anyway, I'm just sitting with all of these ideas about being a white person in today's society and how just this week I had several encounters with my own racism, my own white wellness industry bullshit that I have to put up with all the time, but I'm still trying to learn how to navigate it and how it's been perpetuated in religion, in culture, in community settings. And it feels really uncomfortable to look at. And so a lot of people don't, 
but the more that we turn a blind eye to it, the more that it keeps perpetuating. And that's how we are in charge of of systemic oppression is because we won't do anything to acknowledge it, to look at it and to say what our piece is. And it's very painful. It's very painful to see the injustice that's happening and knowing that I'm part of that system when I don't speak up about it or when I don't pivot my choices. I want to end with an Audre Lorde quote. I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. And this week also in media, I've seen a lot of women cutting their hair for Iranian women, starting with a lot of Native American indigenous peoples. They've been cutting off their hair in solidarity with all of these Iranian women. And I think about the shared injustice. I can sit here in this corner of the world and pretend that this kind of violence isn't happening to me because it looks different than what's happening around the world. But the truth is, I can't be free while other people are unfree like this Audre Lorde quote, because I'm not free. I'm just put up on this pedestal of what looks like free, of this illusion of freedom because of the oppression of others. And once you can understand what that looks like in in your own life and in your own settings, I've shared some personal examples today of, of what's happened this last week. But once you can start dismantling what it looks like for you to be quote unquote free, it's an illusion. It's not freedom. It's part of some kind of white centering, some kind of upholding of your specific culture, if you feel safe and free and entitled to do what you want, maybe look at some of the shadow elements of why that might be. And it might be because of racism. It might be because of religious indoctrination. Anyway, it's a challenging topic. And it's an ongoing discussion. And I hope that we can keep talking about it. And just admitting the uncomfortable truths and also gaining compassion and empathy in our body that we're not free until, until everybody's free. Thank you for joining us today on Tent Talks, and we'll see you next week. <music>